If you have your Bible this morning, and I hope you do, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. What a great way to talk about Valentine love than to continue our study in the series, Did God Really Say?, with the question, Did God really say that man is wicked? Isn't that a great Valentine's title? I really pined and pined and thought, what would be a great question to ask about love on Valentine's Day? And you know what popped in my mind? The wickedness of humanity. Wouldn't that be wonderful to preach on on Valentine's Day? Let me go ahead and let you know, this is a message on love. It really, really is. The problem is the question always leads us away from love, but the Word of God answers this question by pointing us to the absolute greatest love story that's ever existed. So in our culture, we have all of these questions, and in our series, we're going through answering different things about, did God really say uh, that that life begins at conception? Did God really say there are only two genders? Uh, This week, we're looking at, did God really say that man is wicked? I believe that there's a major divide between Christians and culture on this particular point. At his root, is man genuinely good or is man genuinely evil? There's a divide here because the the biblical narrative that we're going to look at here in just a moment says that man, as we currently are, are at our root and at our nature wicked and evil beings. Whereas the culture says, if you can just make the conditions right, man is naturally good and will figure it out. Really, I think a lot of the questions that we come clashing with in our culture come down to this question. What does the Bible say about the nature of humanity? Is it true that if we just get the right surroundings, if we can just put people in the right environment, if we can just legislate certain rules a certain way, people will naturally gravitate towards goodness and well-being? Are people genuinely good at the core? By the way, I want to believe that. I'm an eternal optimist. I am. I I clash with uh, my wife and I'll even say her side of the family somewhat um, in this idea of optimism. Uh, My wife's family are more realists, right? Uh, That's what they call pessimism. Realism, right? We, we understand that there's, there's this idea that, that we want things to turn out well and be good. Right? We, we, want, we want to look for the best in every situation, whereas the realist says, I'm just going to understand how things really are. My desire is to trust people. I really do. My desire is, is to, at its base, assume the best in people. And as I read Scripture, I still keep that optimism with an understanding that the realistic the realistic state of our human fallen world is that man at his core will always choose to depart from God. Let's define a term real quick. Did God really say man is wicked? What does this word wicked mean? I I want to be very clear what I mean by wicked. It means prone to sin and wander away from God. If there's no interaction, man is prone to choose against God and for himself. He's he's prone to choose his own selfish ambitions as opposed to what God has laid out in his created order. So when I say wicked, I don't mean that everybody that walks the face of the earth is equivalent to some mass murderer, genocidal maniac dictator. What I mean is our hearts gravitate towards selfishness and doing what we want to do, not gravitating towards what God's standard is for us. By the way, 
if we let our hearts continue that way, we can very easily find ourselves slipping further and further into what the world would define as wickedness. But as we're looking at this word wicked, we want to equate the word sinful, we want to equate the word rebellious. Do we naturally have a tendency to look out for ourselves and our own desires over what God created us to be? We're going to be several places this morning, including Ephesians chapter 2, a very powerful chapter in Paul's letter to Ephesus. And I want to begin just by looking at the state of humanity in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. Would you read these verses along with me, either in your copy of God's Word or follow along on the screen? It says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Listen to how we're described. You were once dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in, passion, in, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Can we pause for just a minute and say, this would go great in a Valentine's Day card. So if you haven't got your spouse or your significant other Valentine's Day card, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 would be great. You live according to the passions of your flesh. Or, or going back a verse, you may even write, um, you're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. I'm a romantic at heart, you can tell. As we start to study Ephesians, as we start to study God's Word, what we find is at our core, at our base, humanity is described as dead, selfish, and under the prince of the power of the air. By the way, this description is telling us that it's not just humanity that is wicked. All of creation has a tendency to follow in this pattern. I do want to share with you a love story this morning. Uh, I want to share with you kind of how I met my wife, and I'm going to use it as an illustration of wickedness. I love you, honey. Happy Valentine's Day. My wife and I were in college before we were wife and me. I just happened to be sitting in class, and I noticed this really, really cute blonde girl sitting a couple of rows in front of me in one of my classes, and I made it my goal to go and talk to this, this, this girl. And so I knew her friend that she was in class with, Wendy. Uh, I had talked to her a few times, and so I thought, I can go talk to Wendy in hopes that maybe I can talk to this girl she's with. And so I strike up a conversation. Little did I know, after the fact, uh, Hannah's recollection of that was, oh, you're trying to pick up Wendy? Good luck with that, buddy. And that was like how she first was introduced to me, thinking I was hitting on this other girl. Uh, so she didn't talk, she didn't say anything, and I just assumed that she was a quiet, wrong, southern, wrong, bell, wrong. But that's what I assumed just by her quiet demeanor. Uh, and so after a, another class we shared, she gave a presentation. I thought, here's my chance. I'm going to go in, and I'm just going to introduce myself and tell her what a good job she did on her presentation. And so I did. I said, I've never heard you talk before, and you just did really, really good. That's a great pickup line, by the way. I've never heard you talk before. I don't know how that one worked, but I'm a romantic at heart. So, but so we, we talk, and I walk her out to her car. She's going back, and, and I thought, that's the end of that. I had actually asked um, the, the friend she was with. Her cousin uh, lived in the dorms with me, so I went to him, and I said, hey, do you know anything about this girl, Hannah? And he said, well, he gave me some information. I thought, well, that's probably not something that I need to pursue right now. And not bad, just wasn't right timing. That came across really bad, didn't it? Um, <laughs> just wasn't, wasn't the right timing, and thought, well, we'll see kind of how things pan out. A week later, here's where the love story picks up. A week later, I get an email, 
and it says in the subject, this may seem strange, and it's from an email address I don't recognize. By the way, that's called spam. Don't open that typically, right? But I decided I would open it just to see what was it, and it was this email from Hannah. And in this email, she's writing all of these things about how strange this may seem. She didn't even know why she's writing this to me, but she happened to see um, that I introduced myself as Trey, but online, when she looked me up, stalker, uh, <laughs> online, as she looked me up, she noticed that, that it said my name on the school directory as Douglas. That's my legal name, so now you know that. <laughs> she saw my name was Douglas, and she thought, this is really weird. Now, here's where the email turned really strange really quick. I don't know why I'm telling you this, but several months ago, my sister had a dream that I was dating a guy named Doug. <laughs> Stalker, right? I mean, all right, you've been looking me up online. You're sending me a weird email. And so what do I do? Well, if a cute blonde is stalking you, you ask her to ice cream. So that's what I did. I caught her, and I went, and, we, and, and, and the rest was history. We teased that, uh, that Hannah married the man of her sister's dreams, and that's the kind of where, where I'm at. Now, I use this as an example. I just told you, it's a humorous story. It's really a God-moving story. God knew I needed all the help I can get. He's like, I'm going to plant seeds in family members. I'm going to change your name in weird ways to draw attention. God knew I needed help. He, here's where... Here's where I say we can understand how things can unravel quickly. If Hannah was up here giving a testimony, she would give you a very similar story with a lot different details. She would conveniently leave out the stalker part. As a matter of fact, she would emphasize how I was stalking and asking about her. And whether that's true or not, doesn't matter for the story, right? But she would give a, a different account that would paint the picture a little bit differently. And, and as we stood up here, you would look and say, well, they both have the general details, right? The email, the, the dream, the ice cream. But the specifics, it's hard to know what truth is. Hey, can I tell you this morning, it, it, it's a great story, but it's a reminder to me that we live in a fallen world that we don't always know what truth is. This person says this, this person says that. We, we have this understanding here, we have this understanding there, and the truth is one of us has the events exactly right, and Hannah has them a little off, but one of us is right, and one of us is, is you guys would sit here and hear the same story from different perspectives and go, we don't really know how all that details played out. This is kind of the, the nature of our fallen world. Truth is lost. It's impossible. In our, our state as it is, we have so many conflicting stories. Truth is lost. Now, God works through that. It doesn't matter that we have our stories a little bit different. What matters is God used that situation to bring us together, and here we are, now pastoring First Baptist Church as a family, and, and God had a plan for that. But we understand this idea that, that these competing stories help us or hurt us in understanding truth. As we ask this question, did God really say man is wicked? It's important because if we are in a fallen world, then we cannot know truth. We just can't understand it. But the good news is God's intention was not that we remain fallen. As a matter of fact, we learn through Scripture that God actually created humans good. If you're taking notes, write this down. God created humans good. You can even put in parentheses, if you would like, perfect. God created human beings perfect. I use this word good because in the Old Testament, in the creation account, that's the word that the writer of Genesis uses. As Moses is writing down 
the creation account, he says that God's creation was good. That word literally means it was complete and exactly how God intended it to be. It was perfect. Let's look at a few verses in Genesis chapter 1, several times that God tells us his creation was good. First of all, uh, on day one, God creates light and he separates it from the darkness. So day one, light and darkness. At the end of day one, in Genesis 1-4, God saw that the light was, read it with me, good. That's perfect. God said this is exactly how light is supposed to be. On day two, God creates sky, or he calls it the heavens. He creates heaven. On day three, he creates dry land so that it rises up out of the water and it separates from the water. And at the end of day three, in verse 10, he looks at the dry ground and the seas and God saw that it was good. It was good. God created it good. Also on day three, God creates plants and vegetation. In verse 12, again, it springs up and God saw that it was good. It was good, right? At day four, God creates a sun, the moon, the stars, right? So he's got bodies in the heaven and he looks at his creation and surprise surprise once again god calls it good it is a good and perfect creation day five god creates sea creatures in the water birds in the heaven verse 21 tells us yet again that god's creation is good you notice i keep adding verses on the screen it's exactly the words he uses over and over and over again god saw that it was good day six god creates the land animals God makes everything that crawls on the ground, all of the beasts of the field. And in verse 24, you guessed it, God saw that it was, it was good. It was perfect. We're not done in day six. Everything God has made from here is absolutely good and perfect. Then also on day six, God creates humanity. He creates man, male and female. He creates them. In his own image, he creates them. And it's the only thing in creation that God stamps his image on. Everything else is created apart, but humanity is created specifically bearing God's image. And once man is created, God says in verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Humanity is this crowning work of God's creation. It's what completes his creation. In the New Testament, Paul tells us that, that God created everything perfect, but we messed it up royally. As a matter of fact, Romans 5, 12, Paul reminds us that in this perfect world, sin entered in. And how did it enter in? Well, it entered in according to Romans 5, 12. It came into the world through one man, and death came through that sin. God created everything perfect, and you and I royally messed it up. Or in this case, can we put blame where blame is due? Adam and Eve royally butchered it. They just completely dropped the ball. It's okay to admit that, by the way. It's okay to look back and go, why? Like you had all of the trees to eat from but one. And Paul tells us in Romans 5, sin came into the world, imperfection came into the world, wickedness came into the world, brokenness came into the world through one man. It was through Adam and his wife Eve. And because of that, we now have death and sin and wickedness. God's intention was not that the world was created wicked and evil. God created everything perfect and good. Can you imagine, just try to imagine, 
a world where nothing ever goes wrong. Even the labor that you do, the work that you do, is pleasurable. The temperatures, no matter whether it's high or low, always feels perfect. Even when there's snow on the ground, you can feel the gentle spring breeze blow against your skin. There's no death, no sorrow. Everything goes right. God created his creation good. Indeed, he created you and I very, very good. We butchered it. Sin comes in the world through one man, death through sin. And while we blame Adam and Eve, there's a reminder to us that the rest of verse 12 says, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now's where we take a step back and say, okay, it's enough blaming Adam and Eve. They messed up and they dropped the ball, but guess what? Death spread to you and to me as well. Why? Because Adam sinned? Is that what it says? Did death spread to you because of Adam's sin? Why did death spread to you? Because all sin. Because I sin. Because you sin. Because wickedness is on each and every one of us. It's the second thing I want you to write down. God created everything good, but sin corrupted humanity. This is where the wickedness enters the world. I promise you the love story is coming, but we have to understand this. We have to understand that God's perfect creation was forever corrupted. Not just corrupted, sin murdered humanity. God created you for life. But sin causes your death. Sin is a, a corruption that doesn't just apply to, to Adam and Eve. It is spread so that it is our, our very nature. And this death now is what defines us. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, we read, you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were dead. God created you for life, and your sin murdered you. Life once marked our existence in the garden. God created us so that we could have eternal life, but death is now our identity. This sin is not just what we do. It's not just our actions. It's our very nature. It's who we are. We're marked by this identity of death. That's why down in verse 3, we read that we are by nature children of wrath. This is our nature. This is what marks us. This is who we are now because of sin. Sin isn't just something we stumble into as life progresses. It's not like we're, we're born with a clean slate and that as we go through life, we accumulate sin in our own life. Scripture tells us we're born with this very nature. It's because our nature that we are born into wickedness. That's why David writes in Psalm 51 verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. You know, you don't have to teach a toddler how to sin. They figure it out on their own. You don't have to teach a child how to do wrong. It's in their nature. We talked about this several weeks ago, about the nature of children and God's saving power in them. We won't, we won't reiterate that, but what we do want to reiterate and make sure we understand is that it does not matter whether you are seconds old or centuries old. All of us are marked in our nature with iniquity or sin. It's who we are. It's, it's what we exist for when we're born. Did God really say that man is wicked? It's worse than that. It's not just that we do wicked things. It's that our very core and essence and nature is this sin and rebellion against God. 
This sin nature makes it impossible to please God. Matter of fact, Paul's going to tell us that it actually makes us impossible to even understand God at all. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the, spiritual, of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Your condition is worse than just your wickedness. It's that you don't know truth. You can't understand truth. And in your sin, even when God reveals himself in creation or in other ways, we don't want to accept it. We don't want to believe it, and we reject it. By the way, if you are a believer in Christ, this verse and this verse alone should be enough to make you have sympathy and break your heart for people who reject Christ. We put up walls and we say, how dare you? We're reminded that our very nature blinds us to truth. We pray that God's Spirit would break through that blindness because in our own strength, we will never understand the things of the Spirit of God. Since it's our nature to sin, can we be held accountable? Are we really at fault? The Bible teaches us that every decision we make, apart from Christ, when we are born, every decision we make is a wrong and sinful action. Can we just throw up our hands and say, the devil made me do it? It was the serpent, Eve said, who deceived me. Right? It was, it was the, the wife, Adam says, who deceived me. Can we put the blame game on everyone else and say it's not our fault? It just has inherited to us and we can't do anything about it? No, James chapter 1 tells us we're personally responsible. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it's conceived, give birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Your wickedness is in your life because of your own nature and your own decisions and your own responsibility. To summarize this amazing, wonderful love story on Valentine's Day, God created humanity perfect, in perfect love and in perfect unity. And Adam's decision to rebel brought sin and imperfection into our world. Those sinful desires are passed down from generation to generation to each person so that now we always choose wickedness over God's perfect plan and it makes it impossible for us to know God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. What, what a bleak and horrible outlook. I'm so thankful that God's word was not written just simply to tell us about our wickedness. So now that we've answered the question, does God really say that man is wicked? I think it's important to answer why God wants us to know we're wicked. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, is the two most powerful words in the Bible. All of this wickedness is on you, verse 4, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were wicked and marred by sin, he made us alive together with Christ. I love this. By grace, you have been saved. The truth is that we are created perfect, rebelled against God and corrupted, but Christ has restored humanity. God himself has provided a way that we can see through our sin, our wickedness, and our guilt and see the cross of Christ. 
The reason why preachers love to preach on sin is not because we like pointing fingers. I, I hate pointing fingers. What I love about preaching on wickedness and sin is it gives me the chance to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, in our own selfish state, we will never, ever come to God on our own. But God is rich in mercy. With our own actions and our own decisions, we will always choose selfishness and never choose God's will for our life. But God is rich in mercy. Left to our own devices, we will rebel and we will run. We will do what's best for us. It will be disguised as what's best for the community, but what we mean by best for the community is where we feel most comfortable. We will always do what we want and rebel against God's created order. And we'll be so blinded towards it that we will never choose to correct it on our own. But God. This morning, the greatest love story that's ever been shared can be summed up with those two words. But God. In spite of the fact that your heart is selfish and wicked, despite the fact that you find yourself choosing things for yourself instead of God's plan for you, despite the fact that you rebel and you run, God, in his great mercy, has provided the way for restoration. The Bible tells us that if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior to forgive our sins and Lord to lead and guide our lives, that he offers a full redemption, a full pardon, Two things, God, forgive me for the wrong I've done. And two, Lord, show me how to live right and let me follow you. That's a summary of the gospel. God is rich in mercy and his desire is that you know him today. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much that even though we are wicked to the core and left to our, our own understanding would rebel against you. And we thank you that in the midst of our deadness and our sin, the scriptures say iniquity or trespasses, however we define it, God, in our rebellion, you love us and are rich in mercy. Father, you call to us to trust that you have a better life. So Lord, we thank you that you paid the sin, paid for the sins on the cross, not just for me, but for anyone who would turn to you. So we ask that you would forgive us for all that we've done wrong. Lord, reveal to us how we can follow you. But when we turn to you, be our Lord, be our guide. Let us look to you and your word for how we're to live now. Restore us to that right relationship. And Father, we pray that as we examine our own heart and see our own sin and wickedness, that we would rejoice because of those two words, but God. And we thank you that you're rich in mercy and love. Forgive us today. It's in your name we pray. Amen.